Ashley Mullet Show. I am, as always, Geared Ashley Mullet, your intrepid host. Today we're going to talk through Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 23, and we're going to talk about a couple of things that I've got cooking, and I'll give you some updates. But um, first of all, I wanted to talk about realistic expectations, and what are they? I've been talking excitedly around my house with my wife. I'm probably driving her crazy because I keep going on and on about what are all the possibilities for this book that I'm in the process of getting published. I have not yet actually contacted any um, you know, traditional publishing houses, but I've started looking into Kindle Direct Publishing. I'm thinking that looks really handy and that uh, that would not be a bad way to go. I think I will go that way, but I am in the process of having it reviewed, my book. There's 16 people total who are currently looking at the book and are going to give me some feedback by December 21st. And at that point, I will be on my two-week vacation through the end of the year. I will be working on the book, finishing it up, getting it ready to publish, putting it in a format and condition that I will not be embarrassed to have the wider general public read, particularly if it becomes a big success. And so that actually, that latter part, that very last thing is what I want to talk about a little bit, which is if it ends up being a big success. Now, are we prepared for that? And I've been thinking about that, and there's a couple of different angles that I look at the question from. One is, what would that mean practically in terms of implications if it ended up being a bestseller, if it sold a million copies, for instance? What would we do with that? How would that affect my family? How would that affect me? Would that have a positive effect on my family? Because that's what I'm doing with the book is I'm writing a book saying, this is why we homeschool. This is important to us. This is something that we believe is in our best interest. It's in our children's best interest. It's the right thing to do. And we're, we're doing this because it's beneficial. And we've looked at the other options. This is the most beneficial option from our perspective. And so that's what the book is about and why. But it's interesting to think about changing the status quo, the, the status quo all of a sudden being disrupted, which it would significantly be if this book sold 10 million copies. If it sold 10,000 copies, it would be a, a major uh, change for us. And so what does that look like in terms of affecting our day-to-day or our week-to-week? Would that be too much of a disruption? Would that be uh, upsetting the apple cart? And one of the examples that comes to mind as far as what I don't want for us, what I don't want us to look like on the other end is um, the Duggar family in Arkansas. You know, the Duggars, Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar, we had the privilege and pleasure of uh, hearing them speak and seeing their family perform at a homeschool conference in Ohio about a decade ago. And... I was always slightly um, confused or concerned, if you will, at the effect that having so much spotlight on their family day in and day out was going to have on their children. I was always concerned by that because I thought, you know, that's not necessarily in their 
kids' best interest. Their kids have to be perfect all the time or look perfect. Their family has to look perfect all the time. Things are not perfect all the time. And you shouldn't have your kids be in the spotlight like that, I don't think. You know, God is their judge, and uh, the things that came to light as far as interactions between their children, um, I think that, you know, for one thing, maybe just maybe not being in the spotlight quite so much and being a little more reluctant may have freed their attention up to um, be more attentive to dynamics between their kids. Maybe they took their eye off the ball too much and it became, hey, look at this, you know, we've got it all together. And while you're so distracted with the attention you're getting because you're saying you've got it all together, you stop having it all together. Maybe you did have it all together. Maybe you didn't before. Maybe you just were good at you know, putting up a good front and making a good presentation. And when closer examination eventually allowed malicious people who hated the idea of a large family, a large conservative homeschooling family being um, so squeaky clean and, and making them feel self-conscious and insecure, when those malicious people eventually got a hold of some dirt that they were able to run with and, uh, you know, make a name for themselves off of, they did. They did so. And uh, I don't think any of us are the better for it. So that's a, a situation and a scenario that I do not want to see. I actually genuinely hesitate on pulling the trigger on this if it's fantastic. You know, there's a couple of scenarios in which I have pause about writing this book, publishing this book. You know, one scenario is if it's a flop, <laughs> it doesn't do very well. It's like, well, what was the point of putting in all the time and attention and effort if it's not going to do well? And I don't know that it's not going to do well. I don't know that it's going to flop. I don't know that it's going to be a roaring success. But either way, you know, you want to be sure that this is being done for the right reasons that, you know, why we homeschool might be well and good. Writing a book and this is why we homeschool isn't necessarily a good idea just any way you might do it any more than homeschooling is a good idea just any way you might do it as long as you do something and call it homeschooling that isn't necessarily beneficial for your kids and your family and it doesn't necessarily honor god but with the publishing of the book i am thinking to myself maybe the response i get from 16 people is yeah there's a little cleanup to do here this could use a little bit of improvement you know work on that change this up, maybe add something about this, take this section out because it's needlessly distracting and inflammatory, whatever, right? Whatever the feedback's going to be. I'm sure some of all of that is going to come back from people. There's also the possibility some people are just going to not respond at all because it's the holiday season and I can't blame them for that. I plopped it on their laps December 1st in a already tumultuous year and then you add to it that it's Christmas, it's the very end of a tumultuous year. And uh, I'm going to give them some grace if they end up not being able to execute like I was hoping they would. That's not on them. Um, let's suppose I get feedback, and by and large, the feedback is, this is fantastic. This is an excellent book. And I hope that's the response. I mean, that'd be nice. But suppose that's the case. And Suppose it's the case that I self-publish or I go through a traditional publisher and this sells a million copies and all of a sudden my phone is ringing constantly. I'm at work, I'm at home, I'm doing things, I'm busy, I'm trying to 
be a husband and a father. I'm trying to be a friend to people that I know. I'm trying to be productive in life, not just writing about life, but I'm trying to be productive in, you know, that writing this book is one of the ways that I want to be productive and helpful, but not the only. <laughs> so how do I avoid, if it becomes a roaring success, how do I avoid letting that carry me away? And then my family gets carried away with it as well. I don't want that. I don't want us to lose perspective. I don't want us to, um, you know, get sucked into a black hole so to speak, wherein the spotlight is on us, the, all the attention is on us, we become the future, we become the family that looks like or thinks they have it all together. Let me tell you right here, folks, we do not have it all together. We just don't. We have issues, we have foibles, each of us has our little quirks and the things that, you know, are blind spots or hang-ups or weaknesses or whatever, each of us has things that you know are not exemplary and by god's grace we will press on and we will try and honor him regardless we'll forgive each other if we're being um, unpleasant or unhelpful or having a bad attitude sometimes but i don't want my wife and my kids especially to be carried along into a spotlight especially if the hostile uh, people that are not going to like what I say in this book are going to be trying to go after my family and try and make an issue of them and try and um, treat them like some kind of a circus act or whatever, or treat them like uh, a way to shoot down this idea. You know, I know there's a lot of people, a lot of progressive people in this country that are totally okay with murdering children. And what I mean by that is abortion. Abortion is murdering children. And so if they have to break a few eggs in order to make an omelet and they have to hurt my children in order to save the larger collective as they see it, I don't doubt that they're willing and able to do that. If they're willing to attack a homeschooling family that appears to be wholesome and doing a lot of things right, not by no means all of the things right, by no means perfect, but doing a lot of things right, if they're willing to smear them and attack them, I don't want to put my family in a situation where all of a sudden they are, um, you know, taking slings and arrows that are really meant for me. Uh, I think as a husband, as a father, I have a responsibility to protect my family. And that also means thinking ahead. That also means, you know, wargaming a little bit of different scenarios. If it flops and I'm really disappointed and I'm brokenhearted about it and I'm frustrated and feeling disillusioned and experiencing self-doubt and all that, well, that could be a problem, right? That could be a problem for my family. And how am I going to deal with that? And I need to think ahead to that scenario and be prepared to take myself in hand and not go that way and not be that way and not lose sight of the big picture. But so also sometimes nothing feels like success. And so if all of a sudden this ends up being a bestseller and let's say there is a huge windfall, there is a huge profit from it, and I'm able to write full time, I need to not let myself become conceited or puffed up or, or lean into that either. And so part of what I wanted to do this morning is I wanted to talk about how that's not a good way to orient ourselves. We should not be doing and saying things only based on whether they're going to be a roaring success as we see it, uh, or we should not refrain from doing things just because they might not go the way that we are hoping they go. You know, I didn't write this book 
first and foremost, so that it would sit on a shelf and just be unproductive and nobody would read it. I wrote this book for people to read. I want people to read it. I want it to be helpful. I want it to be a help to them. I don't want it to be a look at me, look at us. We're so fantastic and you're so awful. I really don't think that's a good thing for anybody, including us, you know, maybe especially us. It's not a good thing for us to be in that mindset. You know, Jesus asks a question at one point in the Gospels about two men who were praying in the temple, and one of them couldn't even look up to heaven, and he just beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He can't even look up to heaven because he realizes that he is a sinful man. And then the other man is a religious man, and he stands off to the side, and he looks up proudly, arrogantly, conceitedly to the heaven, and he says, oh, thank God I'm not like this sinner over here. And between the two of them, Jesus asks, which one do you think went away justified? And those listening to the question say, well, the first man, the first man is the one who went away justified. Yes, exactly. Jesus says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, GSV, Garrett Standard Version, summary uh, of the Bible. I want to be that first man. I want to be the man that beats his breast and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. But within that, we have to remember that there are sins of omission and commission. There are sins of commission that we think of more often. Uh, we are conditioned to, I think, in our current climate and in our um, traditions to think of the sins of commission, the things that we do that we ought not to do. But there are also sins of omission. And sins of omission come in when we fail to do the good thing that we ought to do. For he who knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it, it is sin. Whatever is not done in faith is sin. And so God wants us. He is pleased by us doing good works. Let your light so shine before all men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And that last part of the sentence is critical. If you're doing things like the Pharisees, you're doing things like the religious uh, hypocrites that Jesus was confronting and going uh, up against during his years of public ministry, if you're doing things to be seen by men and celebrated and noticed and acknowledged, you're doing it for the wrong reason. You're getting it wrong. You've already received your reward. If you're doing it to be uh, praised by men, you should be doing these things secretly when at all possible, when at all feasible. Now, that dovetails with this book because it's a thorny question. You know, at what point does doing the secret thing have to give way, whatever your preference is, whatever you would like, whatever you would maybe rather, at what point does it have to give way to letting your lights or shine before all men? I'm not doing this so that I can get kudos. I don't want to get a pat on the back first and foremost. I want to get a pat on the back enough to be encouraged and not despair and not lose heart and not give up on doing a good thing. I do want to get that kind of kudos, but I don't want to get kudos like, hey, I'm fantastic, and now I'm going to be conceited, and pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty look before a fall. Don't help me by <laughs> helping me be conceited. I want to be faithful. You know, that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven is critical there. Is our motivation to do this thing so that we are seen by men, celebrated by them, or is it regardless are we doing this thing because God's going to see it and be pleased by it? 
You think of David when he brings food to his brothers who are in the army of Israel, they're serving, and they are encamped against the Philistines. And the champion from Gath, Goliath, is standing between the two armies. And for days on end, he's mocking, he's insulting, he's being uh, lewd and crude and rude, uh, mocking the armies of Israel, marking, mocking the king of Israel, Saul at the time, and mocking the God of Israel taunting them and baiting them and challenging them. And for days, nobody does anything. David shows up to bring food, to bring lunch. He's the delivery boy. He hears all of this and he's incensed. Why isn't anybody going to fight him? Who's going to fight him? How long has this been going on? I'll fight him. I will fight him. His brothers are not pleased. You know, go home, David, go home. And it's typical. I've got six sons. I see it. I see the sibling rivalry. Sometimes it's uh, a fine thing because it motivates. Sometimes it is a terrible thing that has to be checked because you don't want your kids uh, being insecure with each other. You don't want them backbiting each other. You want them to love each other. You want them to encourage and build one another up in a positive way. And you see David's brothers responding to him in a very typical brotherly fashion. Get out of here. Shut up, David. Go home. You're embarrassing us. Get out of here. And uh, David does not, from anything that I see in the text, challenge Goliath. He does not volunteer to fight. He does not step up to the plate because he's thinking, oh, look at me. He's standing up to the plate because it's the right thing to do, because it needs to be done, because somebody needs to do it. Somebody needs to take initiative in this scenario. Somebody's got to have the intestinal fortitude to reckon with Goliath. And so the, the moral of the story is not just that, hey, anytime we think there's a big hairy problem in our lives, we've got to be like David. You know, the, the, the point is the right thing is the right thing to do even if it's costly, even if you're going to get mocked, even if you're going to earn the scoffing and ridicule of your family, your friends. You know, I think that was more on David's mind than being praised for stepping up to the plate. He was just thinking, hey, you know what? God would be pleased if I stepped up to the plate here. God is not pleased that we're all standing back and doing nothing and not responding to this challenge. God's not pleased by that. I want to please God. And so damn the torpedoes. If you don't like it, tough, tough noogies. So God sees that. I think that's exactly the reason why God refers to David as a man after his own heart is because that was David's mindset. David was after God's heart. He was wanting to do the things that please God. Not perfectly. Didn't have it all together, obviously. But that, that right there, is commendable. That is laudable. That is something that we should be pursuing as well. So fast forward and let's read through Jeremiah 29. I'm not going to give you an exhaustive summary of the whole book. And it's comforting to me when we see references in the New Testament, as a side note here, when we see references to the Old Testament in the New Testament, there is a certain familiarity with the text, which is assumed in the way that the Old Testament scriptures are referenced. And I love that. You don't have Paul and Peter 
stopping and going into length and giving you, you know, okay, well, the author of this text was such and such, and they don't, they don't do this surgical dissection of this passage before telling you, hey, this is what it says, and this is what it means. They just launch right into it. They just quote it in passing on their way to reinforcing their point. Hey, this is written. What I'm saying, what I'm writing is consistent with what was written in the Old Testament, what was spoken to our forefathers by the prophets, what was promised by God in the Old Testament. Not that they referred to it as the Old Testament. That's a construct of ours. But I'm just going to launch into, this is the text. I'm going to read it for you. And then we're going to talk about some of the implications and some of how this uh, should inform our view of God in relation to his people and uh, what his plans are for us. So anyway, Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 1. This is Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. It says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalworkers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, quote, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares Yahweh. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares Yahweh, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said Yahweh has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says Yahweh concerning the king who sits on the throne, who sits on the throne of David, and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence. And I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse 
a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. Because they did not pay attention to my words, declares Yahweh, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares Yahweh. Hear the word of Yahweh, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Kolahiah, and Zedekiah, the son of Maasiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. Yahweh make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel, they have committed adultery with their neighbors, wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares Yahweh. So, that is Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 23. And I want to unpack this a little bit. I want to go through each of these verses and talk about some big ideas. And I want to especially focus on verses 5 through 7. And I think that verses 5 through 7 are very interesting. I think that some of the latter verses in this selection are also interesting by contrast. But let's consider the situation. As I mentioned earlier, you have King David. He's not initially king. Initially, Saul is king, and the kingdom is taken away from Saul, given to David, because Saul is faithless. Saul does not obey God. He does not obey diligently. He does not have a heart to honor God, first and foremost. He has his own mind. He wants to honor himself. And because of that, because he's afraid of people, because he's afraid of man, because he's uh, self-seeking, and he's not God-seeking, he is removed from the kingship, and the kingdom is given to David, a man after God's own heart. The kingdom is not just given to David, but God promises to David that a descendant of his will always sit on the throne of Israel, and that promise ends up having its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus, who is descended from the line of David, and who will forever and eternity sit on the throne of Israel. But the story does not end there in a jiffy. It is not over just like that where David's a faithful king, and then after that comes Jesus, and then that's all there is to it. There's an intervening period of good kings and bad kings. There are kings that honor God. There are kings that go whoring after the gods of the nations around them. There are kings that are just, who obey the word of the Lord. And there are kings who disobey, who are cruel, who are dishonest, who are malicious. And ultimately, the kingdom is broken in two. You have Judah, you have Israel, and the two kingdoms end up being faithless. And they don't end up being ripe for judgment at exactly the same time, but God does give them over to the hand of their enemies because they are faithless. God is faithful, and that is one of the ways that he is chastising 
his people is he's giving them into the hands of foreign nations. So in this case, in particular, Babylon is the nation that is allowed to conquer. And so you have exiles, you have people that are taken away into captivity because God has given them into the hands of the Babylonians. They're taken back to Babylon and they are going to be grafted into the Babylonian administrative state. They're going to be put to service for Babylon. And it's an interesting thing. You see, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. In other words, you're going to be here for a while. You might as well get comfortable. Get used to this because this is what it is. This is where you're at right now. And you should accept that. I told you this was going to happen. It did happen. Now it's happened. And this is what it will be. This is your discipline. This is your situation. But he says, build houses and live in them. Rule 101 to civilization, build a house. Step one, build a house. You've got to have somewhere to live and plant gardens and eat their produce. You've got to have something to eat. So make arrangements for where you're going to live, where your family's going to live, what you're going to eat. Get comfortable. It's going to be a while. Take wives and have sons and daughters. You know, it's going to be a while and you should have a family. You should have a family. If having a family is good, it's not good that the man should be alone. That was the first thing that was not good according to God in Genesis. God said it was good, 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 good. Days one through six of creation. The first time he says something's not good is when he looks at the fact that Adam is alone. Adam being lonesome, without a wife, without a family, without another of his kind, it's not good. So God says here, in an echo of that, take wives. And don't just take wives, be fruitful and multiply. That's an echo here. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Be fruitful and multiply. The end of verse 6 says, multiply there and do not decrease. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill Babylon. But it says not to subdue, not to conquer. Their role here is not to conquer. They have been conquered. Their role here is to learn greater devotion to God because this is discipline. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city. That is to say, seek the welfare of Babylon. Babylon is not a righteous nation. But you are supposed to be seeking the welfare of the city. Pray for it. Pray for it. Pray for its welfare. Pray for its security. Pray for its provision. Pray for its peace. And seek. So you're not just praying. You're seeking. What does that word seek mean? Seek is a word that implies diligence. You know, you think about you're missing your car keys. And this happens occasionally from time to time in my house. The car keys go missing. And all of a sudden we say, hey, guys, boys, kids, help mom and dad look for the keys. They're missing. And 
sometimes, I don't know if you have any experience with this. If you don't have children, you don't have experience with this. If you have children, you have experience with this. Sometimes you'll tell your kids to look for something and they'll give up after five seconds. I can't find it. Hmm. Okay. Did you look? Yeah, I looked. I mean, did you really? Like, did you actually want to find the thing? If you wanted to find the thing, I think you would still be looking, but you gave up after five seconds because your heart's really not in it. That's not seeking. (laughs) That's not seeking. You're not really interested if you look for five seconds and then you just shrug like, ah, can't do it. No, seek the welfare of the city implies diligence. That implies focus. That implies concerted effort. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So you want Babylon to do well, God come again. Like what? what? Uh, But they conquered us. Babylon is not a good country. Babylon is not a good city. Yes. I mean, these people are wicked. They don't worship God. I'm confused. Why do we want them to do well again? Well, you want them to do well, first and foremost, because God commands you to in verse 7. So verse 6, verse 5, you're building a house, you're planting a garden, you're having a kid. And you're not just having a kid, you're having sons, multiple, and daughters, multiple. And you're going to raise your kids here. You're going to raise your sons and daughters in Babylon And you're going to marry your kids off to the kids of others. And they're going to have kids. So this is going to be a while. This is going to be multiple generations. And I want you to increase. I want you to not decrease. Interesting. When you think about population and demographics in the modern age with birth control and abortion, We have in the Western nations, in the developed nations, a problem with demographics, which I'd love to do a episode on. In fact, I'd love to write a follow-up book to tell you the truth. I'd love to write a follow-up. I I think I will. God willing, God willing, as James writes, James, brother of Jesus, writes in the New Testament, you should say, God willing, we will live and do this or that. Today or tomorrow, we will go to the city and work there for a year and turn and make a profit. Don't boast like that. Boasting is evil. God willing, we will live and do this or that. God willing, we'll be alive tomorrow by God's grace. So we'll see what his plans are. I'd like for this to work out. God willing, I'd like to write a second book as a follow-up to, and this is why we homeschool. Maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't. But I'd like to write a book talking about why we have children. Why do we have children? Well, as Christians... Verses like this come to mind. The creation uh, mandate to, I'm sorry, the dominion mandate. That's, I mean, it's kind of both. It's kind of both and. God creates man and gives him a wife. And he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it to the two of them. Fill the earth and subdue it. You're supposed to fill the earth and subdue it with God's image bearers being promulgated. So you're spreading God's image all over the planet and you're honoring him thereby because he commanded it. You're obeying him when you do that. Have kids. Get married. Have kids. 
Big idea. So I'm going to write, and this is why we have children, if the Lord allows. I think that would honor him, but maybe he's got better ideas for how I can honor him, and that's okay too. But anyway, back to Jeremiah 29. Verse 6, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters also. Multiply there and do not decrease. Fill Babylon and not subdue it, but seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. So you know what this looks like to me? This looks like a little microcosm of the command that God gave first to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And also he gave that same command later on to Noah and his sons after the ark came to rest on Ararat when the global flood literal global flood was concluded. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And if they had not, we would not be here, by the way. So thanks. Thanks, guys. <laughs> thanks, Adam. Thanks, Eve. Thanks, Shem, Ham, Japheth, your wives. Appreciate it. Um, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In its welfare you will find your welfare looks to me like a encouragement and an acknowledgement that we should be considering our welfare. We should be thinking about, is this good? Is this good for us? Is it good for our children? Is this good for our family? Is this beneficial? Is this profitable? Is this secure? Is this safe? Is this wise? We should be asking questions like that. That's what is meant by the word welfare. You know, we think welfare in America and we think the government sending unemployment checks to those who are not working, sending disability checks to people who are disabled, sending food stamps or providing food stamps to people who don't make enough money to buy good nutritious food in the proper quantities. All of that's welfare. Uh, you know, public housing, subsidized public housing built and maintained with taxpayer funding where we put people who are too poor to afford decent housing. <coughs> we think of that as welfare. That may or may not be actually in everybody's long-term best interest to do things that way, but that's part of what is meant by welfare. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord, pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We should be. We should be interested. We should be invested. We should be pursuing diligently. We should be working and applying ourselves diligently to the welfare of the city where God has sent us into exile, even if it's a wicked city, even if it's unjust, even if it's cruel sometimes, even if it's not honoring God. And honestly, to be quite honest with you, that is part of why we should seek the welfare of the city is because it doesn't honor God. And if we are honoring God and we have hearts that are inclined to listen and to be obedient to God, and then we are demonstrating how that informs the way that we seek the welfare of the city, how we perceive the welfare of the city, 
then maybe just maybe we win those people over who are not believers, who do not honor God as they ought to, who worship other gods, who are adulterous, who are idolatrous, who are covetous, who are slanderous, who are murderous. Maybe just maybe we show them how it's done. And then they see our good works and they glorify our Father in heaven. I want to look up another passage here. I hadn't intended to reference this, but it comes to mind as we're talking about this. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, and this is a passage that we discussed here recently in youth group and in small group. <clears throat> and I want to come to verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's almost as though this is a theme. <laughs> it's almost as though God's word is consistent. It's almost as though God repeats this idea, this theme over and over so that we understand how much he means it how important it is to him and his plans and his purposes for us. It's almost as though this is what we need to be about. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there's that word again, sojourners and exiles. Exiles is, I believe, supposed to trigger in the mind of the reader a remembrance of passages like Jeremiah 29. Oh, yeah, you know what? God's people were exiles at a time. They were exiles in foreign lands that were hostile to God, that were not obedient, that were not honoring God. How did they maintain themselves? How did they behave themselves according to God's word? How were they called to? What were they supposed to be about? Well, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat the produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pray to Yahweh on the behalf of the city, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And that's fine. That's good. That's okay. That's not selfish. That's not carnal. That's not materialistic. That's not wicked. For you to find your welfare in the city which God has brought you to. That's not bad. Get that out of your head. God's telling you to do it. It's good. It's good. That's not something wrong with you, that you want that. That's God-given. So don't repent of good things that God gave you. Thank God for the good things that God gave you. Just don't worship them as God. Don't worship the creation. Worship the creator. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when, not if, when they speak evil against you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, what that means, friends, Romans, countrymen, what that means is, like the Romans, the morality and what is seen as civic virtue, public virtue, private virtue, right and wrong, what is honorable, what is good, what gets kudos, as the Greeks would say, is not going to be the same in the mind of 
these Gentiles, so-called, the Babylonians, if you will, to Jeremiah's recipients, they're going to disagree with you about what is right and wrong. And some of what you think you should do because you've read God's word, because you listened to the words of his prophets and his apostles, some of what you are about and what you say, how you conduct yourself, the fact that you're taking wives and having sons and daughters and marrying off your kids and encouraging them to have children, you're being fruitful and multiply, filling the earth and subduing it, they're going to say that that's bad. They're going to smear you for it because they think that that's wrong because they have a different morality. They have a different idea of right and wrong that's faulty, that's broken. But, 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 keep your conduct among them honorable. Do the right thing. Do what is right so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If they see you doing the right thing consistently, they might just be won over by it. They might just be persuaded that this is good, actually, that worked. You know, one of the things that astounds me about when my wife and I were considering marriage is just how many naysayers there were in the church, not in the broader community, in the church. And the reason for that was because so many of the people in the church did not base their ideas about marriage and family off of God's word. They based their ideas about marriage and family off of what everybody else is doing. They're like Saul in that regard. King Saul was interested in what everybody else was doing. And even the fact that King Saul was king in Israel was based off of not what God had said, not what he had commanded, but based off of what the peoples around Israel were doing. And so God says, you know what, that's fine. You know, Samuel objects. He basically, you know, blows a gasket. He loses his temper. He goes off when the people of Israel, the children of Israel say they want a king. He goes off because God is their king. What's wrong with you people? Like, this is stupid. What's wrong with you? And God says, no, 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 nope, it's fine. It's fine. And basically, you know, rather than fight it, rather than try and explain how dumb an idea this is, the idea of letting them just do it is kind of like the parent who says, sometimes I just let consequences be the discipline. I'm going to just let you do this foolish thing. You should know better. I'm going to let you just try that. And you'll see the consequences of your actions will be the discipline. And so you have Saul being put put up as king over Israel so that Israel is not left out. They can be like all the cool kids around them who have kings. And they pick a king for themselves who is the tallest, who is the head and shoulders, um, bigger man, literally, than the rest of the people. And that doesn't work out so great for them because they pick based on appearances. They pick based on what everybody else is doing. So also with the church that Lauren and I were going to, 
we were attending. She'd attended it since she was a little girl. I attended in my high school years. And the people there, some of them were very pleasant, warm, friendly. But too many of them, based the way that they oriented themselves and their families, the way that they advised others, the way they perceived others, primarily, first and foremost, off of, well, this is just what everybody does. This is what everybody else around us does. And even when I, for instance, said, well, this is what the scriptures say. This is what God's word says. This is what we're commanded to be about and to do. And this is what's true. It fell on deaf ears. It was like, oh, no, no, no. That's that's not what we do, right? We don't. That's not how we respond and relate to God's word. No, 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 you're getting it wrong. Lauren, don't marry him. Don't marry him. He, yeah, no, 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 no. He's, he's not right in the head. This guy's crazy because he thinks when God says do something, we're supposed to actually do it. Like, that's not the way this works. No, 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 no. So if we're not like that, if we're not just going with the flow and becoming converted, the missionaries who go to a foreign land and they end up becoming converted by the natives instead of converting the natives. If we're not like that and we persist and we persevere and we're about the things that God calls us to be about, First Peter says that when those around us speak evil against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, they will become believers. They'll be converted by our example, by our conduct, by the fact that we really believe these things. You know, James says again in another place, show me your faith without works. I will show you my faith by my works. And Jesus, again, as I quoted earlier, says, let your light so shine before all men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, Anyway, you compare and contrast that with what Jeremiah writes towards the end of this chapter where he talks about these false prophets who are claiming to speak in God's name. God did not send them. They are going to receive punishment for it. They are telling the people what they want to hear. Don't do that. Don't do that. People want to hear this is going to be over before you know it. Don't get comfortable. We're going back. God's going to deliver us out of this. That's what the Lord said. God says, mm, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. And you're a liar. And uh, they get judgment. They get judgment for that. Far be it from us to follow their example. Let's be Bereans about things. Let's study diligently to you know, show ourselves approved workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I think in our current context, where a practical present day application for American Christians comes into play is that we increasingly find ourselves living in Babylon and we find that progressives have built up this administrative state and they want to take our children and they want to give them new names. They want to strip from them the religion of their forefathers. They want to strip from them their Christianity and they want to give them 
names that honor Babylonian gods, so to speak, in a manner of speaking. And we need to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we need to do that knowing that evil will be spoken of us. You know, I wrote, and this is why we homeschool. I'm hoping to publish it here in January of 2021. And there's a couple of things that might happen. One, it might flop. You know, the people that I sent the manuscript to may or may not read the manuscript. They may or may not love it. They may or may not share it with other people once it's a book that can be purchased in its final form. Or the book might become a bestseller. and It might just be a tool for homeschooling parents to persevere, to hang in there, to maybe change up the way that they do things, to remember why they did this, to give them language. I want to give them language to articulate why they do what they do, why they made this decision. I also want to help them to refine their reasons so that if they have forgotten, if they have gone off the rails a little bit, they get back on track and they do it in a way that honors God, first and foremost, in a way that is beneficial to their marriage, in a way that is beneficial to their children. And in that will be my welfare. My welfare will be in that. My children's welfare will be in that. We live here. We have a vested interest in this country not collapsing and not falling apart. We have a vested interest in Mao's cultural revolution, not seeing its own American version played out on us and our children. I am seeking the welfare of the city to which God has brought me in exile. This earth is not our home, so to speak, and yet it is because God put us here. And if God put us here and has a purpose for us, and if he can tell the exiles in Babylon to build homes and plant gardens and get married and have kids and marry off our kids so that they have kids, so that we have grandkids, if he can say, seek the welfare of the city to the exiles, and if he can echo that through the Apostle Peter in the New Testament, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We should be doing honorable things. I think this is an honorable thing. I believe by God's grace, insofar as he gives me the wisdom to see and to say what I am, I believe this is honorable, and I hope that it honors God and that it does not make me conceited, I hope it doesn't flop. I really don't want it to fail. Um, I want this to bear fruit. I want it to be fruitful and multiply. I want it, quite honestly, to be profitable. I want it to be profitable to those who read it, to their families, to their children, to their children's children for generations to come. I want it to be profitable to the city, to the state, to the nation. I want it to be profitable to my family. <clears throat> I don't want this to disrupt my children's upbringing. I don't want it to disrupt my marriage. I don't want this to upset the apple cart to where I stop being a good husband and dad because I'm so focused on this book. But uh, I want it to be profitable for 
the sake of my wife and children because we live here. I want this to be a peaceable country marked by justice and prosperity and civility because my wife and children live here. It would not hurt my feelings either if this sells 10,000, 100,000, a million, 10 million copies and makes a little money. That'd be all right. I don't need a ton of money. I don't need vaults of gold and cash. I would almost certainly be giving away most of it. I would not mind setting us up with a ranch in the country, some acreage, having no mortgage, having no rent payments. I would love to have all of my student loans paid off, my vehicle loans. I'd love to not be scrounging uh, each paycheck. You know, it. I, I'm going to say this because I don't know what people have as far as a perception. I don't make any money to speak of off of podcasting right now. Uh, I've never made any money off of blogging. I've got nearly 50,000 hits, 50,000 visitors, I should say, who have visited on the rocks blog in the past five years. And I did not write all the content and I did not create the website just for the record. I give credit for creating the website to Marshall mullet. He creates it, maintains it on his server. So thanks Marshall. And I give credit to Micah Hirschberger for really helping even my writing to be much better in quality over time, over the years, my writing is the quality that it is in no small part, thanks to Micah. And then also Micah has published plenty of content at on the rocks as well. But, um, you know, I've helped him with his, I've been chief editor since we started the blog in 2015, 50,000 people have visited the website from all over the world in five years. That's roughly on average 10,000 people per year. Uh, actually more because we started in September of 2015. I know. No, let's see here. Hmm, math. Anyway, 50,000. 50,000 visitors and uh, roughly one and a half to two uh, page visits or page views per visitor. And I haven't made any money off of that. I've put a lot of time. I mean, we're talking... 100 to 150 articles written in five years. I'm now upwards of 50 podcast episodes, each being about an hour in three years, two to three years. And my wife, God bless her, has been encouraging, supportive. Uh, it definitely has been a test of patience for her, I'm sure, that we've struggled financially. You know, seven kids, me being the sole breadwinner, I work full-time, and I also do this, and I try and double-dip as much as possible. I have a commute to work, so I listen to audiobooks, and I try and study. I try and study to show myself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, not just God's word, although first and foremost God's word, but also general revelation, also general truth and things from history and 
philosophy and political science, psychology, etc., etc., using those for God's glory in conjunction with and, and through the rubric of God's word as the test of what's true and what's good. It would be super cool in my mind if five years of labor and toil produced a harvest, not just of minds changed, people persuaded, hearts that turned to the Lord, people that are enriched and encouraged and built up in their faith and uh, emboldened to live out their faith, to let their light so shine before all men that they might see their good works, glorify their Father in heaven. I would like, not just a little, (laughs) if this book ended up being very successful, ended up being profitable from a financial standpoint, because money answers everything, as Solomon writes. (laughs) Solomon writes in the wisdom literature that money answers everything. And so we'll see, you know, like I said before, James writes that we should not boast that today or tomorrow we will go move to the city, work and live there for a year, turn and make a profit. We should say, God willing, we'll live and do this or that. So I leave it in God's hands. Pray for me that I am diligent regardless of the outcome, whether it's phenomenal success or whether it is a flop. Pray for me that I am honoring God and persevering and enduring, and I will pray for you as well. With that, I conclude this episode of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I thank you for listening. I hope it was helpful to you. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, objections, complaints, feel free to email me at garrettmullet at gmail.com. Otherwise, thanks for listening. Until next time, God bless.